Oh, could you hand me that water, sugar? Thank you. Before I even get started, I'm going to have a disclaimer here. I've got allergies that I haven't had since I was a kid, I guess. And I'm hacking and coughing and slinging snot and carrying on. And I'm sorry. <laughs> My name is Benoit, and I am a member of Al-Anon. Hi, y'all. I came into this magnificent fellowship of ours February the 7th of 1969. Uh, my home group for many years was a central group in Lubbock, Texas. Today, uh, I'm a member of the Unity Group in Denton, Texas, and a member of the Stepped Up Group in Los Angeles. Um, I hate to say this, but I must. I had one and only sponsor for 40 years, and she died a couple of years ago. And I don't think I've gotten that in my skull yet, that she's actually gone. Um, and I, too, uh, Bob, I didn't get a sponsor for six months. I just couldn't. I mean, I literally couldn't. And if it hadn't been for the people that I sponsor, I still may think I'm smart enough to take care of myself. But uh, they started after me. So I absolutely have the privilege and the honor of going for Pat Clater for 40 years to Nail Largent out of Walrick, Oklahoma. So I'm twice blessed. And... Um, Oh, goodness, I want to thank this committee so much. Um, this has been a great weekend. I mean, y'all just don't even slow down, do you? <laughs> and that countdown, I don't think I've ever seen that many old-timers. I mean, from five years up, there's a ton. Of, there's not much to do in Indiana, is there? <laughs> And I got off the plane, and Carolyn was waiting with the limo guy, and he had taught her how to make a sign, so I had my sign with the limo guy. And, uh, she was gracious, and thank you so much for all you did, and Peggy's been outstanding in your committee. I just, I've had a, a really wonderful time. And y'all are almost like Texans, just friendly and sweet and nice, and thank you. And the speakers this weekend have just been awesome. I mean, Philip, with what, 23 years? 18 years is the baby. I said that to him tonight at supper, and he said, What? My hearing aid don't work. What'd you say, huh? And he's the baby, for God's sake. made me sad that I'm and glad that I'm a part of the swan song for our fabulous speakers Juanita and oh my I just can't imagine y'all not being out there but it, what a privilege it is to sit with you at your last speaking or next to last and thank you for all those years you were one of the first couples that I heard when I was new and you made a big difference in my life and thank you for all those years I know I know how tiring it is, and missing your family, and being on that road, but just thank you. You're real disciples of recovery, and I love you both. Oh, Lordy. 
I've said what I'm supposed to. Now I'm supposed to say something else, and this is the point I never know where to. I mean, how do you say? What do you? I mean, where do you go? This this is so magnificent. This fellowship is so magnificent. I, I know everybody's had tried to explain it, and you don't have to again. But um, the things, my life, I, I can't get over it sometimes. And I never get tired of hearing my story. I just think it's fabulous. You know? <laughs> that really happened? Yeah. You know? I was born in Lubbock, Texas. It was a really small town at the time. And it's out on the West Texas Plains. There's cotton and cattle and horses and mesquite trees. And you can see for about 500 miles straight. Sand blows a lot, and there's absolutely, positively not one thing in the world to do there. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I had three brothers. Um, My father owned a used furniture store, and we had kinfolk. My dad was part Indian from uh, Oklahoma, and we used to go there for summer vacations. And and we went there one year, and my brother, I don't know how old was, I never, I was about five or six, seven, something like that, and... My oldest brother, Donnie, and then I had a brother, Jimmy, then there was me, and then my younger brother, Gary. And while we were there, Donnie was jumping into a creek, and he stepped over just a few feet and dove in and hit a sandbank and broke his neck. Uh, Changed our lives forever. Uh, We didn't have insurance. I don't think there was insurance like there is now. And we had to, he was in the hospital there, uh, nearly dying over and over and over for I don't know how long. It seemed like a long time. And I was put with some friends and one aunt and uncle, one aunt and uncle who didn't like kids, and they'd keep me some. And then different (coughs) friends of my family, and eventually they brought him back to Lubbock, and he was hospitalized there for a long, long time. And I didn't see my parents for great long stretches of time. And I was in people's homes that I didn't hardly know. And I felt out of place because I was indeed out of place. But they were gracious and kind and trying to help my folks. A lot of things happen when you're a young girl like that and in places like that. The one that that I mentioned that really changed my life, uh, made a stamp on me, was... um, And this sounds really old. I'm not as old as this sounds, okay? Uh, (laughs) Uh, I was out at this couple's house, and it was Saturday night, and it was time to take a bath, whether you needed it or not. And they had one of those old number, I think you call it 10 wash tubs, one of those big old silver wash tubs. They put it in the floor in the kitchen, and she filled it up with water off her wood stove and called her three children in there one at a time and bathed them, and then she called me in there and after her kids and said, Come on, I want you to take your clothes off. It's time to get your bath. And I looked at that bath water, and oh, dear me, <laughs> it was gray. And it had some white stuff floating on the top of it. She said, come on, get in here, hurry up. And she reached out the bottom of that tub and pulled up this washcloth. And I stepped in it, and she started washing my face with that washcloth. And as I stood there, and this water smelly, I thought, oh, well. I didn't belong there. I wasn't her child. I was out of place. And I didn't deserve any more than this nasty, cold, stinking water. 
and it was an oh well. Now, I'll tell you that because that oh well stayed with me until I got into this program. Oh well to life. Oh well to the things that happened to me. Oh well, who did I think I was? Um, my dad lost his business, and they put a ad. My Sudafed just kicked in. I can't even... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he he uh, lost his business, and there was the Lubbock Avalanche Journal paper. And on the bottom of the page, front page, they had little black lines, bold, Father Swallows Pride and Ask for Help. And I thought, oh, now I heard them discussing that. We don't have pride now. My family is different than other, other, every other family. And then here comes some women, and they brought sacks and sacks and sacks of groceries in. Uh, and my daddy, he kind of turned gray and went outside. My mother sat down, and she started crying. And one of the ladies, no disrespect, but this is exactly what, as I see it and remember it, blue hair, of course, little violet lips came over. She's very short, uh, very endowed. And she walked over and she hugged me and she put her arms around me and pulled me to her. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. I couldn't breathe. She said, oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And I'm going, oh, oh, oh. I'm just smothering in her endowment. And... Um, They were going to pray for the family, and um, they prayed for lots of things. I don't remember what. I just had to be quiet and watch count my toes or something. I don't know what I did. But nothing that they talked about ever came true. And then shortly after that, it seems to me, there was a bunch of people came, and they went around my brother and uh, yelled and hollered and put their hands up in the air and were waving it, and they were throwing water on him and... Uh, it was very frightening to me. I mean, it was very frightening to me. So after they left, I went, ran in to see if he's okay, and he said yes, and that Jesus was going to heal him, and that uh, he the first thing he's going to do is chase me around the backyard. Well, I was very excited. I, you know, he'd been in that bed for years, seemed like to me. My whole life was, you know, everything was around him. Our whole family revolved around him. When you could get up, when you could go down, when you could eat, what you could not eat, how the house smelled, which it smelled horrible. It smelled of rotting flesh and old urine, and it was horrible. And everything was around him. Is he going to get up and be well? Yay, yay. So I went in the living room, sat on the couch to wait. And, of course, that did not happen. His neck was broken, and he was paralyzed. So to me, there was no God. There was nothing to look forward to in this lifetime. And it was going to be like this forever. Now, I met some older girls later on, and they seemed to be having a better life than my dreary one. And one of them said, well, won't you come go with us? Now, I'm a very shy kid at the time. And uh, I'd go anywhere just to be around people because I stayed outside all the time. I did not... I did not want to be in that house. I didn't bring anybody in that house. It smelled bad. It looked bad. My parents fought all the time. There was nothing there. 
and I was just in the way. There was, it was a two-bedroom house, and my mom and dad shared a beth, uh, bedroom, and my three brothers had a bedroom in the back, and I had a little twin bed in the dining room. There was a living room, the dining room, the kitchen, and there I was, and I had a little wardrobe behind a door. And that was my life. I didn't have anything else. And I was always out of, you know, just in the way, seemed like to me. So she told me about what I soon found out was my second home, uh, my first love. Uh, and they took me to a West Texas honky-tonk. Oh, my God. <laughs> I fell in love. The minute I walked in, a lot of familiar smells. <laughs> a little urine, a little puke, a little rotten fresh, you know. <laughs> Loud bands, lots of things, excitement. I mean, there was excitement in there, and I was watching and loved it. Smorgasbord over at the bar. Smorgasbord of men. In all sorts of staggering stages. <laughs> And that, I didn't realize that I needed as much as I needed what happened to me just about the first night, I think, the first night I was out there. Somebody came up and asked me to dance, and I don't know how to dance. They said, I'll teach you. And they pulled me out on that dance floor, snuggled me up. I had the human touch. I was being embraced. I was being hugged. There was skin on skin. That had never happened to me in my life. My parents didn't hug. They didn't tuck you in. They didn't tell you stories. My parents worked, came in, worked, came in, took care of him, were gone. And I was, I was just a little shadow in that house. I, I had nothing. And here I was, snuggled up. A man holding me and touching me and really wanting to be with me. I was as addicted that second, that second, as I could possibly be that one moment. I don't know how old I was. I lied to get in there. Something interesting said the other night, my daughter and I were watching Valley of the Dolls. Do you all remember that old movie about pills and all that? And there came a scene of this one woman with this sad sounding music and she's on this train and she's looking out. The train is whizzing by in the countryside. Could be out here in Yankee land around here somewhere. And uh, <laughs> snow was everywhere, and it was this sweet little song. And, and my daughter said, you know, when I was, I think she said she was seven, she saw that m movie, and she said, that song made me so sad, and I never did figure out why I just craved that song. I said, well, because you're an alcoholic. It was one of those emotional feelings. She said, well, I was only seven. And I said, well, you're born an alcoholic, and you die an alcoholic, and God writes the story in between. Yeah, of course it meant something to you. And then I told her about, I was like, I don't know, 15 maybe, when I got this touch here, and, and I was addicted. And I'm a born an alcoholic, die an alcoholic, boy, and there's a, been a big story in between. And I knew... I knew that if I could get somebody right here by me, like everybody else in the family, if I could just have a him right here, I'm going to be all right. That's my addiction right here. And I could get them. I mean, it's easy. I figured that out real quick. When you're at the honky-tonk and you wear your 
tight, tight jeans, and uh, you dress a certain way, and if you wave about 11-ish, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> Just go for it. And uh, for, for long, I became a slut puppy hoe. I mean, I was... <laughs> My first major alcoholic came from the Late Late Club. It opened up at about two. Uh, and it was called, its nickname was called the Bloody Bucket. Um, and that's exactly what it was when you walked out. It was just a bloody bucket. I mean, there's fighting in there and shooting and stabbing and carrying on. And just the scourge of society was out there, trust me. I mean, just, you know. And I was so naive and stupid, I didn't know I was in danger. And I mean, I'm talking real criminals. Uh, you call them mafia, I guess, nowadays, because they took jobs to go do stuff. And uh, there was a gambler there, and he walked by my table one night and threw a $100 bill on the table. Now, I had never seen a $100 bill, and it got my attention. And he... You know how, well, this is room for al of course. You know how those alcoholics can, you know, walk up. Here, walk around on this for a while. Just walk off. Oh, my God, I want to jump up and tackle him. I mean, I was in love. I mean, whoa. So I took that money and went and bought me an outfit and some heaven scent. Helena Rubenstein perfume, a brand new bottle. And I, I mean, just... It was my bottle. Do you understand that? It was mine. I cleaned the path away from me for, you know. <laughs> so I started having a meaningful relationship with this gambler and uh, became pregnant with this gambler. And this was not done in my day. It was not done. Uh, you were a virgin until you married, and then you did the right thing by your husband, and after you'd been married for a while, you had 2.4 children, except in the Wessels. They, they kind of skipped that part. <laughs> and, you know, you put a fence around your house and painted it white, and that was it. And I was ashamed of myself. I was, uh, I was ashamed of what I'd done to my family. We were in the, the Baptist Bible Belt back there, and everybody was devout Baptist and my grandma kept telling me I was headed for trouble and I'd just say yes ma'am I, I didn't know what she's talking about but here I was I was in trouble and I had my daughter Tracy and I was in the hospital and the gambler came to me and said I have done as much for you as I'm planning to do so when you get out of here you need to come get your stuff and, and take that baby and go somewhere else I've done all of it well, I learned at that time there's a thing that fits me perfectly. Um, there's a guy in Dallas many, many years ago. He led a meeting, and it was a round-the-table discussion meeting, and he said, Let's, what makes up an alcoholic? So everybody went around and, and talked about the things that make up an alcoholic. And when they got back to him, he said, isn't it interesting that nobody here mentioned alcohol? And they were all alcoholics. And that's the first time I ever heard the word isms, alcohol isms. 
And it's those character defects, if you will, and maybe attributes that make up an alcoholic. And then many years later, I realized that, oh, I didn't. My grand sponsor brought this up, that isms of Al-Anon isms, and she had a list of them. That, and we started studying that list and looking at it. And sure enough, I have isms that really, really fit with the alcoholic isms. My sponsor used to say, the horns in my head fit the holes in his head. <laughs> and the big umbrella that I stand under is control. I don't know that I control, I just do. I don't know that I'm critical, I just am. I don't know I'm insecure, I am. I don't know that I have no self, I mean, sense of humor, no, I didn't know that. Low self-esteem, I don't even know the definition of low self-esteem. Manipulation, what, what? Vindictiveness, now I'm not vindictive, I just try to explain to you how bad you've hurt me in a way that you can understand. All these isms come out. So it came out when he told me that. The first thing I thought of, well, of course, who do you think you are? He's not going to take care of you, nor this baby. What, are you, what was you thinking? The second thing is, well, i got a plan. I've got to figure out, because I have nowhere to go. Nowhere. Um, I've got to figure out a way to get him to let me stay. I know what I'll do. I will get somebody that he hates, another little gambler across town, and, man- and manipulate that gambler to go to the bloody bucket, and-, and we'll go in there, and he'll see me. He'll be jealous, and he'll come running back and get me, and then everything will be fixed. So I, you know, set this in plan. You know, it looks, sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, just boop, boop, boop. And I did that. I got... Uh, the little gambler to go, and we went to the bloody bucket and stayed just long enough to him to see and get get him furious, and we left. And a few days later, they my friend knocked on the door, and she said the gambler had taken a shotgun and blew that man's head off that night. Now I had I had no idea that would happen. For pity's sakes, who would think that that would happen? That's in the movies. That's not reality. And that didn't happen. It couldn't happen. No. No, no, no. No, it wouldn't happen. No. Are you sure? I don't think. Are you sure? And it was dawn. And the sun was just breaking and coming up. And she's telling me this. I don't know if it's second or third time. And I, I got a pain in my chest and my throat that was so tremendous that I, I stopped breathing. And then I noticed that the sun was going back down because everything was getting really black and coming at me. And it was so overwhelming that I made the decision, I cannot stand this, and boom, just like that, I stuffed that feeling. I stepped back and I took a deep breath because I hadn't been breathing for a minute or two. And I said, well, that's too bad. And I said, thank you for telling me and shut the door. And put that away. He shouldn't have, he couldn't have, whatever. It was just no part of my being. Denial. Denial, denial. And I stuffed those feelings so deep that it took me many years in this program to ever go back and revisit them. Well, that was all over the newspaper and the 
television. It was everywhere. Lubbock decides to clean up, you know, the criminal aspect and pictures of him being taken in jail. And all the neighbors knew all about all this. And I, I went over to my mother's house, and the door was locked. And um, she met me at the door, screen door. And she said, we don't want you coming in here anymore. We don't want our neighbors to see you. And if anybody asks if you're our daughter, please tell them that you're not. And I said, okay, Mama, I understand. And I turned and walked off. Now, I knew she was right. I shouldn't have. I had disgraced my family. And they, you know, they'd had enough. They'd just had enough. And so I, I found a place to live and, and uh, found a little job and started trying to take care of this girl. And he was sent to prison. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking... What am I going to do? I've got to do something. I can't stand this. I know what I'll do. I'll go over to the rodeo grounds and get a cowboy because everybody knows they're all American red-blooded, right? And it was the time that some people were tearing up the draft cards and cowboys didn't and, and they now sat over the system, you know, the before the, the uh, rodeo would start and the Cowboy would go out with the flag, and the guy would, you know, God bless America, rah, rah, cowboys, yay, yay. And so I thought, they're clean. They're clean. They're real. Uh, I'll feel better if I get a cowboy. So I went over there with some girls. We put on our tight jeans. I put on my boots. And, and we go over there, and after the rodeo, they have a rodeo dance. And it's on a big slab outside the arena and has a big fence. And all the cowboys lean up on this side of the fence and all the cowgirls on this side and we wait to about 11-ish and just get whichever one you want, you know. And that's that's wasn't any different than the bar. It was just a different dance floor. And so I picked out my cowboy and let him know how much he needed me. Because <laughs> this was going to, you know, I'm going to have a him. And one night... He, I don't know what he said or what I said, but he was doing this, is that finger just beat me in the chest, and I picked up an empty quart bottle of beer, empty beer, and just slammed it up against his head, and he just went flying and into chairs and under a table, and I figured it was a good time to get out of there, so I split, and I got to my car, and he reached, and he chased me and spun me around, and he said, you know what? I think you just knocked some sense into me. I think we should get married. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> now, married. Did you hear that? Married. Now, I, you know, I lost my, all of my dreams out in that bloody bucket, out in that uh, scourge of society. I knew my life was... it. This was it. And there was no dreams left. Alcoholism and Alanonism, if you will, robs you of so many things. But one of the worst things I think is my dreams. I had nothing to look forward to. There was no future. There was nothing. Just me and this little girl that I had to find somebody to take care of her while I went to work and somebody to take care of her while I went out to Honky Tonk because I could not stand to be without him. It was hideous. No dreams. And here he was asking me a piece of garbage to marry him. Let me tell you something. That boy did not draw a sober breath till I got him married. 
I mixed his salty dogs for him. And I made all the arrangements. And I propped him up. And we got married. And here it was. I am going to bake some cookies and make little kitchen curtains. And we'll, he can mow the yard. Uh, we'll go to PTA. This is going to be great. I got him home. Uh, sobered him up. Uh, got him up. Made him breakfast, biscuits from scratch, pork chops, scrambled eggs. I had some homemade jelly I'd stolen and just made him this fabulous breakfast. I packed him a lunch. Inside of his uh, lunch, I had a little, little note that was going to be a surprise when he got home and put it in some wax paper and put it in the middle of his sandwich when he was eating, he'd, you know. He'd come in, his bath was drawn. There was, you know, chicken fried steak, mashed potatoes and gravies, rolls, you know, green beans I'd went and picked and, you know, snapped. And I mean, pecan pie. I mean, I knew what to do, and this was going to be it. I mean, this was it. And, and my marriage worked great for the first six days. <laughs> and then the disease of alcoholism showed up, and the disease of alcoholism showed up, and we went to war. And I mean war. I tried to keep him at home every way I could think of. He, he wouldn't, couldn't, so I started going with him. I drank along with him. I had to watch him carefully. Uh, I had to be very careful. There was blondes out there. <laughs> blondes have been the vein of my existence since I can remember. I'm talking about real ones, though. (laughs) So I was busy, 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 busy. I became pregnant. What what he needed was a, a son, and then he would surely want to stay home. So I had a son. Cutest little cowboy. He's just, I mean, he is the love of my life, my son. And um, that didn't, you know, all that did was give me company in the middle of the night when he didn't show up. And I, I quit going out to the bars because we would get into fights out there. I mean, I was physically abused. Well, it's a good thing you and I didn't get out together. We'd have killed each other because, you know, <laughs> I picked up anything that was close and would hit him. Um, I got a butcher knife and was after him. And sincerely, had I caught him, I would I would have probably killed him. I'd probably be in prison. My kids started staying in their closet in their room because it was it was hideous at my house. The neighbors stayed away from us. There was nobody around. My family didn't have anything to do with me. The neighbors didn't have anything to do with me. And I got crazier and crazier and crazier. I sat in my den in an old green rocking chair and I would just rock for hours and and watch and listen. You know, I could tell his pickup a mile off 
It, if it went tink, tink, click, click, tink, tink, click, click, it was him. I'd run to the door or the window and see what, how he got out of the truck. How was he? If he staggered a certain way, it was going to be a bad night. If he came in real quick, he had been thinking. And he'd come in and he'd open that door and, and then the fight would be on. I'd run, jump in the bed and cling to the side of it and play like I was asleep. I'd breathe funny so he would just, please, just let him go to sleep. And some nights it happened and sometimes it didn't. But he wasn't the first. The, the gambler did the same thing. Uh, I accepted the violence. I thought it was part of, number one. And number two, it was just a, a, a punishment for something. I didn't know for what, but I was guilty and I took it. I mean, it just didn't, it never occurred to me not. And my kids lived through that violence for a long, long time. And if he didn't come in, if he wasn't tearing up things, I would. I would hurt my children. I would go so crazy that, that I'd slap one of them if they come up to ask me a question. I would scream at them if they ask a question like, can we have supper? I was busy thinking and just miserable. And I... I could not stop doing what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I was nuts. The neighbors kept their kids away from us. I was sitting there rocking in this old green rocking chair one day, and I had two black eyes and a busted lip, and I was done. I was as done as I've ever been in my life. And the kids were off in the room quiet, and I thought, "I, I, I can't stand this. And there's nowhere, there's nothing to do. Maybe I can take enough pills just to go to sleep for a long, long time. Put myself in a coma, maybe. And then I knew there was no one to take care of those kids, and I couldn't do that. Now, I had read in Ann Landers a while back, maybe a month or so before, a lady wrote in about her drinking husband, and Ann Landers told her to wrote, I thought, call Alcoholics Anonymous, and they'll tell you what to do. So that day, I'm rocking. It's Friday. He's going to be back in town. He'd been working out of town all week. And I knew I couldn't do it. I could not do it. One more weekend, I couldn't. So I went to the phone. I went to the phone book, looked up AA, called him. This man talked to me, gave me a number. I called that number. Went over to her house. You know, it's like I said today, I don't ever ask for help. I'm fine. Thank you. I don't need your help. What makes you think I need your help? That's why I'd lived for years. And this day, there was nothing. I mean, there was nothing. And she said, come over, and I went. And she opened that door and invited me in her home. She was so member, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a few minutes later, her husband came in, who was also a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know why God had me come that way, but that's the way he, he got my attention because these two people started telling me about their drunkenness and their children and all the things that they did and the shameful things, and I was just shaking my head to nearly everything they were saying. And they made arrangements to pick me up and take me to a meeting, which they did. And I went to this meeting, and it was in a clubhouse, and this man got out. And I scrambled out for her. He even got back the car. He got his wife out of, the, uh, out of the back seat. And then he went over the door of the clubhouse. And he opened the door, 
held it open, stepped back, and he looked at me because I was coming first. And I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, well, why isn't he going in? Why is he just standing there? And he just kept looking at me, and I kept looking at him, and I stopped. And finally, he gestured, go in. And the first thing, the first thing before I even got into a door, this man of AA had mistaken me for a lady. I mean, I never had a door open for me in my life. I saw that in TV and movies, and he stood there and opened the door. I, I couldn't believe it. And I went in, and as I crossed over, there was a little coffee room, and there was two drunks laying, leaning up on this uh, cigarette machine. You know, the, it was some of you remember this. They had the little teeny tiny pictures of the uh, cigarette pack, and you put in a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and you pull this thing, and they flop down. Well, they were leaning against that, and those colors were just kind of glowing up in their faces, and they were laughing. I mean, laughing. I hadn't heard laughter in so long that it surprised me, because there is no laughter in an alcoholic home. There is no crying at my home anymore. There's no fighting in my, unless he came in screaming. There was nothing there. No emotions whatsoever. So the laughter, God, got my attention. And I stopped. And, and James had to kind of nudge me on in. And she went in and uh, sat in that Al-Anon meeting with me and introduced me around. She had never been to an Al-Anon meeting before and never went since. But she went in to sit by me. It's one of the biggest lessons. I'll tell you, if there's a newcomer that comes in now... I make sure they, that somebody's sitting by them, and usually I pat the chair beside me. Come sit by me. Because that's such a, a seemingly nothing situation. Just pat the chair, but boy, it meant all the world to me. Somebody wanted me to sit by them. And I have no idea what they said. I don't know. But whatever went on in that room, I knew I was coming back. And I read later, somebody gave me a book, it's called The Prophet by Cahil Gibran, and it says in there, say not that God is in your heart, but say that you are in the heart of God. So, oh, that's it. That describes what happened to me that night. I walked into this room, and there was the music started for me. There was a music that I can't describe, don't need to here. They said, we'll pick you up Saturday night. You come to the open AA meeting. I went in there, and the music got louder. Because as the man standing there telling his story about what it was, had been like in his home, and that's what was going on in my home. And I knew, I knew, this is different. And this one guy even cussed. I loved it, you know. He said a dirty word from behind the podium. I said, okay. I thought they were all Christians, and I didn't want to be there with a bunch of Christians. <laughs> I could never get through this without telling y'all. They were shiny and clean that night, just like y'all look right here, right now. Shiny and clean and happy and pressed and... It was something I had never seen. I hadn't sat and stuff like that. Because if you come out of bars in the trash that I'd lived in for so long, 
Y'all just look like angels to me. Just like you do tonight. Even with some of your sadness. I know there's some broken hearts in here. In the gentlemen, the men, the sober AA men treated me like a lady. They would hug me, but it wasn't anything but a hug. And they would talk to me, and it was nothing and nothing except, how are you doing? How's your cowboy doing? And sit and talk to me about their stories and, and how they changed. I got so much hope there that I couldn't hardly wait to get back to another one. And I've been doing that same thing now for 42 years. I go to two Al-Anon meetings and one open AA committed meeting every week. And I cannot live without it, trust me. I have to have y'all just like I have to have a breath of air because I can go back to being critical just like that. And I started listening to those women and I, there was two doors to that room and I'd sneak out just as soon as the meeting was over because I didn't want anybody to, to say, have to say anything to me. I didn't want to bother anybody. I just wanted to be able to sit on that back row and, and just listen to y'all and get out. And unbeknownst to me, they had been talking about me and watching me. I didn't know anybody knew I was there. One posted at this door and one posted at that door before they started the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) And uh, I chose this door and this little teeny tiny lady was standing there. and, And she said something to me that, you know, it was divine appointment. Uh, that only I could hear, and it, I could only hear it from her. And because uh, I had been watching her, uh, I could hear her above everybody else, you know. Because hear what she said, she explained things that I could understand. And a couple of days later, somehow or another, I said uh, the word sponsor in a sentence to her, and, and she just kind of took that serious. I didn't know it was going to be that serious, you know. <laughs> Um, she bought me a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, I want you to take this home and I want you to read it. It describes the disease of alcoholism. It shows you and explains. It's the textbook of the disease. And read it and we'll discuss it. And I did and we did. She went through that with me chapter, chapter, page by page. And I could see. I went home that night and sat in the hall uh, with the bathroom door open and read all the stories in the back. And, and got that hope again. Maybe, 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 maybe. Uh, the One Day at a Time book had just come out a few months prior to my coming in, and I got one of those. And I read those books like they were gold. July 1st is, has saved my life so many times in so many areas. Uh, I, July 1st is just, it's my guidepost. And I started going and going and going and doing everything she said and watching what they were doing and Ted and I was being told to get in the car because he worked out of town all the time. And uh, I didn't tell him what I was doing for uh, quite a few months. And finally he was going to be home for a week and I had to tell him what I was doing. And I got instructions exactly what to say to him that I was going to a place that people could help me because I had a problem with his drinking. Didn't mean he did, but I had one. And he looked at me funny and just grunted. And then I kept going and kept going, and I, I literally started changing. I didn't know it, but he could see it, and those people around me could see it, I can tell you. And he started trying to stop me from going. And I knew that I couldn't. That just wasn't going to happen. And um, he locked 
the doors. He hid the keys. Um, he hit me. Um, he did all kinds. He restrained me. He, he did everything. And, and I told him, you, you can do whatever you can do. I am going because there's not going to be any me or you. I can't be a mother. I'm going. And so finally he um, decided to try it for himself. So he, he came to AA, came for six months, and then he decided that he didn't have a problem. And he went back to drinking. And I stayed with him, I think it was like six more years or seven, with him drinking. And me getting better and better and better. And people would ask me, they'd ask me before, when are you going to leave him? As soon as, that's an ism. I will leave him as soon as I get enough money put together. I will leave him as soon as the car gets paid off. When I leave him as soon as the, the kids get out of school. I was always going to as soon as. And finally it was, I don't know why I don't leave him. When I'm ready, I know I, I can and will, but I'm just not ready. The fact was, I loved this man. I didn't love the disease. I hate today. I hate the disease of alcoholism. I hate it. With all my power, I hate it. But my problem is, I love the alcoholic. I have to stay here to get those two things untangled and, and see it for what it is. It's a very deep illness. Seven years later, me and the kids were having my life. The violence stopped. A guy named Beverly came up to me one day and he said, You know, have you ever tried keeping your mouth shut and maybe he won't hit you? Well, I never thought about that. I thought I needed to tell him certain things that he needed to know, and I'd be the only one that would really tell him. So I kept my mouth shut, and um, the violence stopped. It truly did. And one night he came in. I heard the door. You know, let me say this real quick. One of the biggest miracles that happened to me after I got in here is I could sleep all night. Whether he was there or then I could go to bed and go to sleep, that was a total miracle for me to sleep. So most of the times now, I only woke up when I heard him, you know, stumbling or he made a lot of noise. This one particular night, I knew. He opened that door and it slammed it. It was one of those real fast, boom, 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 coming in the bedroom. I thought, oh, dear. And he flipped on the light and he just jumped in the middle of the bed. And he started beating on me. And I got all, I was trying to get away from him and I got all tangled in those covers and went over the foot of the bed, my head hit the floor my, it bounced my face up and I looked in the door and there stood my two children they had gotten there just like that just like that just like that and they were screaming and dancing this little dance daddy please don't hit her anymore please don't and my little son was only like two and I thought my god they're seeing this they understand this they know what's happening I, I, I didn't believe they did for all those years I just didn't think they did. And I made a decision laying on that floor. We've got to leave. And I did. And the next thing I knew, and it's been mentioned this weekend several times, you know, when one of us is wounded, God, y'all come. Y'all just come in waves. And I was wounded, and I was lost, and I was homeless, and I got, I got things just thrown at me. I got a car, I got... My sponsor suggested a nursing school. Now, I didn't want to be a nurse. I never had a dream about being a nurse. I get car sick. I couldn't imagine bedpans and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, 
but I um, got on welfare, which I hated. Uh, uh, got some people from, I started going back to church, took my kids to church. The church, uh, my pastor found out what I was trying to do, and he got a bunch of people to sign a, a note for me so I could get so much money. And next thing I knew, I was in school, nursing school. Come time to graduate, and I had left him. I told him he had to leave, uh, file for divorce. And it came graduation time, and my class asked me to give the class response. And I was just thrilled, 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 thrilled. Now, I remember I was up there thanking the families and the uh, people who support us. And this whole front area over here was my AA bunch. And right up front, real close, was my mother and my father. And they had invited the next-door neighbors to come and watch me uh, graduate from nursing school. Now, they hadn't done anything. Y'all had taught me how to make amends, how to make those living amends, how to clean up and do the right thing. And my neighbors were there. And my father was pointing to me saying, that's my kid. And I was able to take care of my father when he died. I was able to take care of my mother when she died. I was able to give back, give back, give back, give back all my recovery. I took uh, my first inventory was when I was fairly new and, and found a God of my understanding in that fifth step. It was an un unbelievable experience. And then she helped me go through the life and make amends to the people that I need to make amends to. And there was a lot, a lot of different ones. I got to that young man who was in that, who was murdered. And I wrote this letter and went out and, and told him, sat on a bench for a long time and told him that I come and tell you all about that. And that he was not forgotten soul. And he helped a lot of people. And that um, gambler got out of prison, and he called me, and he, he wanted to try to get back with me. And I said, I'm married, and I'm pregnant, and I cannot, and I wish you well. And um, my little daughter wondered about her father, and I finally had to tell her about her father. She uh, graduated from high school, and she wanted to go to college, and I called him. And my sponsor helped me uh, call him. Um, I didn't want to take his money. He truly was still a gambler and uh, a bootlegger. And I, I thought I shouldn't take his money. And she said to me, and, or her husband said to me, it's probably the only way that he can make amends to you. He doesn't know any other way except money, except it. So he came and they met for the first time when she was uh, graduated. And uh, he paid for her first year in college. And... Um, Really, they've seen a couple times since then, but that's it. The cowboy was the her father. I was working. I was doing pretty good. Um, nursing, self-supporting through my own contributions was really good. There's a lot of great things that happened um, in school, but I certainly don't have time to tell that. And um, uh, I have no idea when I started. Does anybody know? <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll talk quick because I don't know it's 9.15 um, the kids you know they were doing fairly well I was divorced going to nursing school and uh, my daughter started drinking and I uh, was hanging out and 
You know, I put her to bed right... 15 minutes left, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And I um, tried to stop her from drinking, explained to her she shouldn't drink, you know, because she was a potential alcoholic. She heard that every, about every 20 minutes. And uh, uh, <laughs> She went to bed, she was a Swedish little thing, little Barbie doll, and next morning she, you know, she had holes in her head and my horns fit her holes. And I mean, we went at it. She screamed she hated me and I screamed I hated her. I mean, it was hideous. I can do a husband because you can kick him out. I can't do my daughter. I'm her mother. She will do what I tell her. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and you cannot... I, I heard you alcoholic women. I heard you from podiums and, and knew the tragedies that you could get yourselves into. And, and I didn't want those to happen to my daughter. I wanted to protect my daughter. And I could not. And uh, I had to let her go. Um, one of the hardest things I ever did. Right after that, my son, uh, I went to work. When I came back, he was missing. Um, I was going to put him in a boy's ranch. Um, he went to see his dad one weekend, and he came back, and he was crying. He sat down on the couch and started crying to me. He said his daddy made him drink wine until he got drunk, and he was like, I think, seven or eight. And I went to my sponsor, and we decided, what, what can we do? And uh, what we could do was um, get him some help and get him away from this alcoholic. So one of the guys had parents at this town, San Angelo, Texas, and, and he could put me to work with his parents, and I could put him in the boys' ranch, which I thought would be like a, you know, going away to a school, a boys' school. And his father, drunk cowboy, found out about it and kidnapped him. And I didn't know where he was for quite some time. And got the sheriff involved. And, and uh, my son called me and he said, I'm staying with my daddy. I want to be here. And I'm not coming home. And I'm okay. And I hung up the phone. Well, here I was, a good mother all these years. And look what these brats have done. You know, I was just... And I went to my sponsor. She said, take an inventory in your motherhood, which I did. And took a fist step with her. And uh, I found out I was not a good mother. I was a lousy mother. I also found out that I was a good mother. As good as I could be. And that the, we were all affected with this disease. Alcoholism and Alanonism. And everybody in that family had done and was doing the best they knew how to do. She told me uh, to get in prayer and meditation and give my children over to God. So I went to this church that I was telling you all about, this pastor. And on Sundays you can go down and there's a kneeling rail and the, uh, the pastors will come and, and um, pray for you. And my son had asked me one Sunday, can we go down and pray for daddy? So me and the two kids went down there and we prayed for their daddy. Now I remembered the day my kids were on either side of me. And there was lights like these right here that you burn up under. And we were, uh, those lights were on our backs. It was really warm and the, and the deacons were there. And I felt so safe and, and so full of hope that very instant that my kids were going to be okay and, the, and this cowboy would be. And so in my mind's eye, I recalled that day. And I handed my kids to God as I could understand him. And um, something happened. I don't know what happened. But something, you know, that that tight chest that I get that I can't breathe and it hurts. Just It just hurts. It aches. That went away. And one day at a time, I have left 
my children in God's hands. That doesn't mean that I don't get worried about them because I do. It doesn't mean that I don't try to tell them what to do with their life because I do. What it means is I don't get crazy about it and I don't do it as long as I used to and I can truly trust the fact that God has them. Shortly thereafter, my daughter got sober. Uh, I met a man uh, at the Midland, Texas conference and he had come with his sponsor, his sponsor's Clancy, and he'd come back with him. And um, I met him and he had these big blue eyes and this big booming voice and his big shouldered guy and a lot of diamonds. <laughs> I noticed it all. <laughs> and we made plans long distance. I was living in Lubbock. He was in Los Angeles. And we made plans to, for me to move out there so we could, you know, see if we could make a, a go of it and get married. And I had everything packed and everything ready to go. And, and uh, he flew into town and dumped me. Said he'd got in touch with his feelings. Well, you know, he was just a big old coward. That's all he was. And, um, I'd given away nearly everything I had, and he gave me money to uh, put myself back together, and I got my same apartment back. And, and I was just, I was really torn up, and I, uh, my sponsees put me on a plane. to my, my sponsor had moved to Austin at the time, and I went down there, and she was trying to talk to me, and they were so kind. But, I mean, she was trying to talk to me, and this is the only, t- only one time in my whole 40 years that I made any kind of remark to my sponsor that wasn't respectful. I never raised my voice to her. I never argued with her. I, I just totally respected and loved this woman. And she was telling me something about God, and I said, please don't give me that spiritual shit. It's just like that, too. And the minute it came out, I could have just slit my throat. And uh, she looked at me just for an instant with that flash. She had a dent in this uh, bone thing here, and her eyebrow would look at you. <laughs> Boy, it hurt just to look, but I would want to hurt, you know. And I said, I'm so sorry. And she's, no, and then blah, blah, blah. Well, that night she came in my room, and she had some hand lotion and a pillow with a pink satin pillowcase on it. And she said, turn over and let me give you a back rub. And she rubbed my shoulders for a few minutes. And then she said, here, here's this pink pillow. Beat it up or hug it, whichever you feel is appropriate. And turn out the light went out. I never forgot that. And I hugged that satin pillow and cried into that satin pillow. And when I left there, I was not mad at Jim because, you know, I knew he was an alcoholic. I knew the sensitivity that he was going through. And I knew he was a man, but I'll tell you who I was mad at. It was God. Why in the world would you let me see something like that? I've got 12 years in the program. I've done everything you've asked me, God. I have been chairman. I have done the dishes. I took out trash. I was the GR, the DR, the PR, the KR, the LR. And I've sponsored your sicko people. And, you know, this is what I get, you know. Well, you, God. I mean, And I went back to the one thing that I knew that would give me comfort and make God mad. I went to 13th Stepping, newcomers that came in the club. And I'll tell you, I felt horrible. I mean, horrible, horrible, horrible. But it was just grinding. And um, we went to a conference. 
Brownwood talk. I think y'all talked at Lakeside in Brownwood, Texas. Didn't y'all talk there several years ago? And I went there, as I did every year, and one of these guys that I was messing with called down there because he was had been in AA. He knew where I was at and knew how to get, and left a message for me to call him. The camp director thought it was an emergency, came and handed me this note in the middle of the meeting. I opened up the note. My sponsor was sitting next to me and saw the name and the number and looked at me, and I thought, I am so busted. <laughs> and I was. And she was not a happy camper, and she could... You know, can you imagine a potato peeler taking your skin off? That's what she'd do to me. And uh, so after thing was over that night, we sat down on the grass on a blanket. And she said, what in the world? And, and I said, Pat, I just feel like God's betrayed me. It's the only way I know to uh, get back at him. She said, really? She said, do you think you've ever betrayed God? And somehow or another, I heard that, and somehow or another, it all clicked. And I started crying. I mean, from the bottom of my toes all the way out. And I said, Pat, there's something about me that you do not know, that I have not told you, and I have not told, I've never uttered this. But the truth about me is I am unlovable. I mean, my folks don't love me, my mama especially. Friends come, and then they go. My kids, you know, they're gone. Uh, sooner or later, people find out about me, and I'm just unlovable. And she said, oh, Benoit, that's not so. She said, I love you with all your warts. And she said, if I can love you, can you imagine how God loves you? And she just reached over, and she grabbed me, put my head on her shoulder, and she just started rocking me and patting my head. And I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed that night. And when I left there and was going back home, I thought, God, if you just let me go back into my meeting and, and sit in my chair. Because a lot of people knew what I was doing, and there's a lot of them that asked me to leave if they could have. But I said, if you'll just let me go back and sit in my chair, I'll take out the trash. I will stand at that door and welcome people. I will do anything from this day forward. I will do anything you ask me. Because I realize I've already had everything that anybody wants. I've had a husband, I've had children, I've had parents, I've had a home. I've had everything that anybody ever wants or needs. And you have given it to me so freely. And I have done this to you. I am indeed sorry. Whatever you want. You want me to come to Indiana, okay? (laughs) And it took me a couple of years to work my way through it. And then the phone rang, and um, you want to go to Midland? I said, sure. So I go to Midland, go in and sit down, and here he comes, the one who dumped me. And uh, big flurry, everybody protecting me, and everybody going to kill him, blah, blah, blah. And um, he asked if he could speak to me, and then he made his amends to me and told me he was frightened. And to make a very long story, story short I caught him this time and uh, we got married and he brought into the uh, the fold his two children a daughter and a son and I'll quickly tell you what happened from there then real quick uh, he had a lot of money and I was thrilled I'd never been rich we moved to Oklahoma we had a fine life fine everything his daughter moved back uh, she had a child out of wedlock and I knew what to tell him because I'd had one so we invited them to live with us and uh, she was an alcoholic got caught and got sober 
She has 24 years of sobriety now. Um, a very, very scary time for her. Um, she has another addiction called gambling, and she's been fighting that the last few years. She's a magnificent woman. She's talked all of us. I'm sure many of you have heard her. Uh, and she's talked and talked and saved lives, and this thing's got a hold of her. And if you think about it, want to, I'd sure covet your prayers for her. And and uh, my daughter got sober. Uh, she had 10 years of sobriety. She met a he on campus. Uh, they got pregnant. They got married. They had baby. They got divorced, and Jim and I got them. And so Tracy has a daughter named Charday, and and Trace had 10 years. Uh, Jim and I went broke in the 1980 oil bust in Oklahoma, so we had to go back to California and been out there uh, all these years. And and uh, she came out, 10 years sobriety, had the baby, looking good, doing all the stuff. Uh, and I got a call one afternoon. As she was in the hospital, she had tried to commit suicide. Sober. And, and I went, and uh, I could see there was the light was just gone. Uh, and God's pure grace, um, she moved to Arizona after that and, and got two and a half years sobriety back. Uh, my son uh, has lived with his daddy all these years, and uh, he's a grown man, of course, now. And uh, he's a lay pastor in the Cowboy Church in Ponder, Texas, and, and he's married, and he's doing fabulous. Um, Jim Jr. is sober finally after long periods of bad stuff, and he has eight years of sobriety. Um, Jim's shoulder was hurting one day, and, and he went in to the doctor, and um, three months later he was dead. Uh, he had cancer, and it spread all over everywhere. And I lost everything. We had been embezzled unbeknownst to us, and we found it out at his death. And I lost everything. Um, my little cowboy had gotten sober. 26 years later, he got sober. And uh, he got to have his first sober Christmas with me and the sober kids. And, you know, it seemed like everything's going along fine. And my granddaughter um, faces up. She's got an alcoholic program, problem. She's got three years of sobriety. My grandson uh, is bad drunk, in and out, in and out, in and out. Uh, Jimmy's uh, son, Marcus, is a bad drunk. But it was really funny. Uh, one weekend, Jimmy called me. Marcus, my, his son, was in jail in Los Angeles. Sheila called me. Brad, her son, was in jail in Oklahoma. I said, oh, good. I know where both of them are the whole weekend. One on this side of the country and this over here. <laughs> so I don't know about the two grandsons, but I know my granddaughter is sober. Uh, my niece my brother, Jimmy, uh, killed himself uh, drunk, um, and he hadn't spoken to me in 26 years prior to that death, um, and I, I had no relationship with him. But my two girls uh, twist-stepped his daughter, my niece, after his death, and it's like God's given me a pat on the shoulder and said it's okay, and she's sober. Uh, she has two children. They're both, one's in prison right now. They're both alcoholics. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But, and my younger brother has two kids. They're both drinking alcoholics. Every one of them have been to here. Everyone I just told you about has been to y'all. Y'all touched their lives. I do, when that last one went with me to a convention, and she sat there the whole weekend, she did not continue to go, but she was there for that weekend. It's like, 
Y'all touched them. They've seen you. They'll be back. I know they will. And it was the biggest relief I've ever, I I cannot explain it to you, how I know they're okay now because they've touched you. God, that's fabulous. Um, There's so much more I could say, but obviously I don't have time. Um, I moved back to Texas two years ago. Uh, My son moved there, so I'm thrilled about that. God worked that out. And I always close with this. Bob White, um, a giant in our country. Um, most Some of you, I know you old-timers and you, Bob. Uh, Jim and I started a, a conference called the Canyon Conference, and he was our Sunday morning speaker. And um, unbeknownst to him, it was his last talk. And he said, we close every meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Have for you, since AA started. He said, I ask you the next time pray it don't just say it he said and it listen to it it says our father and then it says the kingdom and the power and the glory forever so any school kid says he knows if there's a king and it's our father that makes us royalty we are children of the king makes you a prince and me a princess he said claim your heritage Treat each other like royalty and act like royalty. He said, the power is in these rooms within each of us, and we pass it back and forth to each other, and the glory is God himself. And I want you to know that I know that now. When he said that, I had trouble with self-worth all the time. But that day I claimed it. I know who I am, and I know where my heritage comes from. And I can't thank you enough. I am Princess Vinoy. I'm a child of the king, and you have given me that heritage. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.